All right, go ahead and open up to Zephaniah chapter 3. This morning we will finish up um, our series in Zephaniah. And we'll do so by looking at a satisfying salvation part two. Before time began, God had a plan. It was a plan to redeem. It was a plan of redemption. And that plan included creation of all things. It included the fall of man. And it included the salvation of God's people. And God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinitarian God, He would create all things, including man, with full knowledge that rebellion is coming, but also having a perfect plan to redeem through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because it is God fulfilling His promise of a Savior. And you know, because of... The sin in our life, we have this natural inclination to be satisfied. And so we spend all of our lives, all of our effort, all of our resources, all of our money, all of everything in attempts to seek satisfaction. Unfortunately, we typically spend all of those efforts looking in the wrong places. We try to find satisfaction in people. We try to find satisfaction in family. We try to find satisfaction in our children. We try to find satisfaction in sports, hobbies, careers. We try to find satisfaction in... And those, those are good things, right? But we try to find satisfaction also in many things that are not good. And what we have seen so far in the book of Zephaniah, in the prophecy of Zephaniah, is that God provides a satisfying salvation, a truly satisfying salvation, if we simply repent of our sins and we trust in Him. But the only true satisfaction we're going to find in this life is in Christ. We're not going to find it in people. We're not going to find it in places. We're not going to find it in things. We're only going to find it in Jesus. And last week, we began to wrap up the book of Zephaniah by looking at a satisfying salvation. And we did that by hearing of God's promise of hope, that He would send a Messiah, that there is hope coming, that there is good after the bad, the bad of judgment. And today, as we finish Zephaniah, we are going to see that hope realized. So the main idea of what we will come face to face with this morning is that God's salvation is an eternal salvation. So I want to pray for us, and then we will begin to unpack this last portion of Zephaniah's prophecy. So let's pray together. 
Our Father, what a gift of grace your word is. To know that not only did you promise the hope of salvation, but you give us your word so we can be reminded of that promise and how that promise plays out day by day as we read your word. And this morning, Father, as we open this last portion of this prophecy from Zephaniah, may we not compartmentalize ourselves to not put ourselves in the same shoes as the hearers of this message. Just because we weren't there hearing it right then doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us now. It surely does. So help us hear the message. Help us see the hope of the message. More than anything, let us see Christ as glorious. The only true satisfaction that we need and that we can have. So, Father, would you make your word come alive to us this morning? May the Holy Spirit fill the words and awaken our hearts so that we hear the good news, that we see the good news, that we rejoice in the good news that Christ has come. So we ask that you bless the reading of your word. That our hearts would be ready to be receptive. That our lives would be changed by the gospel of grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God's salvation is an eternal salvation. Now, what we're going to do is we're actually going to backtrack just a touch. I know last week we finished with chapter 3, verse 13, but we're going to back up just a little to realize that salvation leads to preservation. So in verses 9 and 10, he writes, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. As we begin to dig into those verses that we actually looked at last week, we see that salvation will come to a remnant, to a set-apart people, to a leftover people, that the majority will not trust in God, that they will not repent of their sins, but that a remnant will be spared by the graciousness of Christ. So in that, we see that in the midst of deserved judgment, because we we realized that last week, that because of sin, our sin is against the holy God, we all deserve judgment, right? We all deserve death. We deserve the punishment that God should deliver, right? Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, and the wages of that sin is death. So in the midst of deserved judgment... This pronouncement of judgment that Zephaniah is proclaiming to the people, we see that God will show grace and mercy. 
And as we see in this, not only will God save a remnant for Himself, but with this salvation comes transformed lives. So salvation is not just right then and it happens and it's over and we go on about our business. It is a life radically transformed. He says, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. And from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. And he goes on, he says, and on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Your proudly exultant, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. Remember the and at the day of judgment, there are left two people, the proud who are rebellion, rebelling against God and His ways and His commands, and then the humble who have announced their need for Christ, that they have rested not in themselves, but in their need for salvation in another. And so you have this, 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 this chasm of two people, the proud and the humble. So he's saying, in that day, I'm going to remove them from your midst. And he goes on, he says, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." See, one of the clearest evidences that one has truly repented of sin and surrendered to Jesus is a changed life. You've heard me say it time and time and time again. When I was in high school, we went to a camp, and one of the speakers at that camp was Johnny Hunt, who now is, oddly enough, the former pastor of First Baptist Church Woodstock. He just retired and went, well, I say retired, he moved to work for the North American Mission Board. Um... But he was one of the preachers, and and I don't remember the entirety of the message. I simply remember four words. He said, no change, no Christ. Without change in our lives, that means there is no Christ in our lives. You can't come face to face with the holy God of all creation and not leave unchanged. He radically changes us. He changes us from the inside out. Our wants change. Our desires change. And so one of the clearest evidences, again, that one is truly repented of sin and surrendered to Jesus is a changed life. We live in a day, specifically us, in a southern culture where many people claim to be Christians, but their lives look nothing like the Savior. That we say we love Jesus, but we don't live at any respect like Jesus would have lived. We don't hold to the same standards. We don't proclaim the goodness of God. We really look nothing different than the world. But salvation changes the lives and the hearts of those who truly receive it. But again, that change isn't simply in that moment. It's a change that continues Because salvation is eternal. It changes us from one degree of glory to another. 
Again, he says at the end of verse 13, For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. If you remember, we looked at Psalm 23 last week. How those who trust in the Lord will be cared for by the Good Shepherd. That He will lead us, that He will guide us, that He will care for us, and that He will prepare for us, and that we will be with Him in His presence forever. Salvation is an eternal salvation. You know, many believe that you can lose your salvation or forfeit your salvation, but I'm here to tell you that's just not possible. It's not possible because you did nothing and I did nothing to earn our salvation. It is a free gift of grace through the work of God in Jesus. There's nothing you and I can do to merit the favor of God. Nothing. You can't work hard enough. You can't give enough. You can't serve enough to make God save you. Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. The only thing that we can do to come into the presence of a holy God is trust in the complete work of His Son, Jesus. Because in His righteousness, we find access to God. And as we clearly see here, those that are truly repentant, are preserved to the very end. There's nothing to fear. And because we're preserved to the very end, we realize that we have been set free to live by God's grace and for God's glory. What a shackling thought to never know if The way I live today is enough to merit heaven. I couldn't imagine being in that position. Think about it. You live your day, you you get up, you may or may not spend time with the Lord, you may have go straight to Fox News, or you may go straight to ESPN, or you may go straight to social media. You start your day, and you come across negative things, and then you begin to have negative thoughts, and you get ready, and you start getting ready. And if you're like me, you have young children, and so there's probably many mornings where you are not having the best of morning because your kids just don't want to listen. They don't want to get ready, and they don't want to eat, and they're dragging their feet, and they don't want to be on time, and you can't stand being late, so you just get aggravated and, and, and you begin to not really act Christ-like and you finally get them loaded up and you get them dropped off at school and then you begin your day. And then you come in contact with people who are not reflecting the nature and the character of Christ. Let's just put it that way. And you begin to not reflect the nature and the character of Christ. Someone pulls out in front of you on your way to work and you have ill thoughts and you make it to work and you're trying and you just keep meeting people that don't know the Lord and they just keep aggravating you and treating you wrongly and so you respond in a non-Christ-like manner and 
Then you finally make it to lunch, and you're like, ah, oh, I get a break, and then same thing, some, you know, your order gets messed up at the restaurant, and you're getting aggravated, nothing's going right, life stinks, this is the worst day of my life, I make it back to work, my computer crashes, I lose all of my work, I lose everything I've been working so hard to accomplish, my, if I'm teaching, maybe I'll lose my grades, if I'm, you know, going to school, I lose, you know, the... 10 pages I've already written for the 12-page paper I have to write, or um, I find out that uh, my bank account's been hacked, and these sorry individuals that can't do anything for themselves, they want to take mine, and, you know, so all of these things are happening in my life, and I finally get to leave work, and I'm like, finally, it's going to be good, and I get home, and I want to just relax, but that just doesn't happen for whatever reason. And then I'm trying to get supper ready and you know, I burn something or it doesn't turn out just right. And, you know, the day's just been absolutely trash. And I lay down and I, I'm so tired and I veg out on TV instead of studying the Word of God. And at the end of the night, I just say a quick prayer like, Lord... I love you. Let tomorrow be a better day. If I am living a life with a theology rooted in self-satisfying salvation, do I rest well that evening? Have I done enough that day to merit the goodness of God? Definitely not. You know, say the reverse happens and I wake up and it's absolutely Hallmark movie-esque. Everything is absolutely perfect. I spend an hour reading my Bible and I'm in prayer. My kids get up on time. They're easy to deal with, so everything's joyous. We have a great morning. We get to school plenty early. Nobody pulls out in front of me, so I have a really... Just enjoyable drive to work. Maybe I'm even listening to a radio station and I call in to do some kind of trivia and I win. It, it, things are great. I spend, have a great morning dealing with people. I get to share the Lord. Maybe I even get to lead somebody to Christ that morning. That was completely unexpected, you know. And I get to spend my lunch hour. Everything's absolutely fantastic. I get to pray for my waitress. I get to give her, you see the thing going around, you give them $100. I get to give her an extra large tip. I get to tell them Merry Christmas. That afternoon, everything just goes as planned. I get home and I have this wonderful time with my family. We gather around and we read the Word of God together. We sing a hymn together. We pray together, we go to bed completely fulfilled in the day. If I am holding to a self-satisfying salvation, have I done enough that day to merit salvation from God? Not at all. See, it doesn't matter how good you are, you cannot save yourself. And so by being able to trust in a God who redeems His people, who sacrifices his own son for the goodness of his people. 
and realizing that it's not on my righteousness, but His righteousness that I have access to the Father sets me free to live a life for the glory of God. It's not going to be a perfect life. We're going to have those days like day number one. But at the end of the day, God is still on His throne and that salvation is still secure. And instead of going to bed bemoaning the fact that I didn't do enough for God, I can go to bed saying, God, I'm sorry that I didn't live for your glory today. But I know that I have forgiveness in you. And if you tarry, if you don't tarry and you let me have another day tomorrow, I will still rest in your grace. What a difference. See, salvation from God leads to preservation of his people. Our hope is not fickle. We have an eternal hope and a conquering king. And it's because of that that salvation is not only preserving, but it's also one that leads to rejoicing. See, because of God's promise to save his people and to preserve his people, those who trust in him are led to rejoicing. See, God's triumphant and gracious work in salvation leads Christians, leads the people of God to rejoice and to worship Him. Look at what He says in verse 14. So God has announced that even though judgment is coming, He will send redemption to those who trust in Him, those who rejoice in Him, and those who are left, that remnant, verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. What is their response to God? How do they worship God? They sing aloud, they shout, they rejoice, they exult in the work of God with all of their heart. Why? Verse 15. Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. We rejoice because God has taken away our sin. He has removed His judgment from us. He has cleared our path of our enemies. And He is in our midst no longer as this judgment-bearing God that Zephaniah was proclaiming. But now He is a delivering King. If you hold your finger there and flip to Revelation 21, you get to see... A future glimpse of this. Revelation chapter 21. John the Apostle writing says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Listen to this. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He's in our midst. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never fear again. So for the people of God, for the ones who have announced and realized the sin that plagues us and we have repented of that sin and we have realized our desperation for a Savior and we have trusted in Jesus as the promised Savior, for the people of God, we rejoice because He has taken away our sin. He has cast it as far as the east is from the west and He has cleared our enemies from in front of us. That means even though you might face these troubles in this life, there is a day coming when all of that will be removed and all of the, the pain and the struggles and the trials of following Christ will be worth it. When the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. So what about us? What about you? Is your life filled with rejoicing because of what the Lord has done for you? And maybe you want to sit there and say, but it's been a rough year. I struggled at work. I might have lost my job. I might have lost a family member. Maybe my Health just hasn't been good. Things just haven't been great. So you're saying the Lord hasn't been good to you? You're here. You're still alive, which means God still has work for you to do. And if you're here and you're a Christian and you're saying it's been a crappy year and that you have nothing to rejoice in, then maybe you've forgotten the joy of your salvation. Because all of these other things that we find satisfaction in, they fail us. God does not. This morning we were kind of joking about the weather and the rain and Ruthie calmly said, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I wonder if we do that. Are we rejoicing in the simple fact that God has saved us? It's easy to, let's say, do what we did Wednesday. Take our kids to the food pantry and let them work and let them hear and let them see. And um, as they were leaving, 
Miss Kim gave them each three dollars and said, "Use this to be a blessing to someone." And um, oddly enough, Friday I was taking Sophie and Piper over to Waycross on a little daddy date, and we passed a man walking down the street who was clearly homeless. And they said, I wish I had my $3 with me. So it's easy to rejoice in the fact that we're not in a particular situation or station of life. But I wonder how much we do sit back and rejoice in the fact that God has saved us. Not that we're not in a bad situation. Like we could be thankful for those things. And we could be thankful for the stuff we have, but how much do we actually sit back and just simply think about the goodness of God in saving us from sin? That an eternity separated from the love and the grace of God in hell is not for us. Like our hope has been secured in the work of Christ. How much do we actually sit back and rejoice in that? Salvation leads us to rejoicing. Are we singing His praises in gathered worship? Or do we just simply stand there cold? As if we're ashamed of God. Maybe we're afraid of what we'll sound like to other people. If you don't have a good singing voice, have you ever thought about the fact that that's just how God made you? And He doesn't care what you sound like? It's pretty arrogant to think that way, isn't it? It reminds me, this past week I was watching this documentary um, called By What Standard, and one of the issues that is addressed in the documentary is, um, check that, it wasn't By What Standard, it was the documentary American Gospel, sorry, I watched two, so they're running together in my mind, but one of the issues that they faced was the rise of feminism in our culture, and this one individual was talking, and she has a podcast called Sheologians, and she said, you know, if you think about it, you have these Christian women who look at the grandeur of creation, that God created all things, even the things we are unaware of, and will boast about God's creative work, and, and will look at how God has orchestrated all of life, but then those same women will look at God's design for a woman and, and true biblical complementarianism and act like God just checked out and got lazy for a few minutes because God designed ladies to be a certain way or to have a certain role. And I never really thought about it that way. Like, God messed up. You know, that's how we live much of our lives. With this arrogance that we know more or we know better than the God who created all things. And it's because of that that we don't rejoice and we don't worship and we don't sing His praises. We should be reveling in the greatness of God. 
because of truth, if God has truly saved you, then you should be holding nothing back. He closes out verse 15. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. There is nothing left to fear. How often do we fear everything else but not fear God? A couple weeks ago, the president of Founders Ministries, a pastor in Florida, collapsed during the middle of his sermon. Completely unresponsive and paramedics, they called paramedics, they came in, they got him and he's okay now. Um, But it was a pretty scary moment for this church. And his co-pastor, his associate pastor, they're really close, they do a lot of ministry work together. Um, He did like a pseudo-interview with... The, the lead pastor while he was in the hospital. Uh, he, the lead pastor thought they were simply just having a conversation, but uh, Jared, the associate pastor, was actually taking notes of what was being said. And so he just simply asked him, what do you remember? And even though he was unresponsive, he remembered what was taking place. He, he remembered who was there. He remembered hearing Jared, his associate pastor, praying over him in front of the church. He remembered the work being done. He remembered the, sa- the sounds going on about him. He remembered being loaded up into the ambulance. He remembered the paramedics working on him. And he remembered this, that the one paramedic that was specifically working on him how crude he was. He remembered the language he was using and the the way that he was acting. And he come to just enough to simply faintly whisper, fear God. And the paramedic said, what was that? And he got closer and he just simply said, fear God. And he remembers the paramedic laughing. But he also remembers the paramedic no longer cursed the rest of that trip. The moral of that to me is, do we live our lives in the fear of God? Do we have a holy fear of God? Not that we're afraid of God. If we haven't trusted in the saving work of Jesus, we should be very much afraid. But for those who have trusted in the work of Christ, our hope is eternally secure. Do we have a holy fear of God as in such a way that we live our lives wanting desperately to glorify Him because He's worth every bit? Do we have a holy fear of God? There's no reason to fear. If we fear God, there's no reason to fear anything else. If we trust God to be who He says He is, and we believe God to be who He declares Himself to be in His Word, then, and that's what we do, then we have no reason to fear anything else. So when He calls you to go somewhere you don't want to go, you go because there are no fear. there's no fear in following the Lord, even though you don't know what the outcome may be. If God tells you to speak to someone specifically, don't be afraid. If God tells you to sing, sing. 
See, the only right response for the people of God is to be constantly rejoicing in the work of God. And that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? That God saves us and He keeps us and He leads us to rejoicing. But I want you to see how this becomes even more beautiful for the people of God. Look at verse 16. You know what? We need to go back to 14 because we need to hear this completely in its context. God has promised, right, that He's going to save His people. That all things are going to be made new. People respond, verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now here it goes. And on that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, to the people of God, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And listen to this, he will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love, he will exult over you with loud singing. Did you hear that? So not only are God's people rejoicing in the promises of God and in the work of God, but God himself quiets us so that he can spend time rejoicing over us. Picture that. The God of all creation is so in love with his people and he's so thankful for the glory that is taking place that he quiets us so that he can sing over us. God rejoices over His people. Salvation preserves us. It leads us to rejoicing and it also restores. See, on the day of the Lord, God's people will be gathered together around the throne of God, rejoicing in His loving kindness, all while He is rejoicing over us as His adorned bride. Go back to Revelation 21. God, given this vision to the Apostle John, John writing, verse 21, I mean, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. This is the day of the Lord. So this is what Zephaniah is talking about. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, listen to this, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things See, God's grace extends beyond salvation. It goes to restoration. He restores His people. 
He takes the broken, the shameful, the wickedness within us, and he removes it, and he replaces it with the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And he has promised to make all things new. And our hope is in that in his time, he will do exactly that. The culture might be going to hell in a handbasket, but God is still on his throne. Things might not be working according to our plans, but God's plans never fail. He will restore his people. God's salvation is an eternal salvation. It doesn't matter what people say or what people do. If you trust in God, then your life is hidden in him. Do you remember what Zephaniah's name means? Yahweh has hidden. He has hidden his people from the anger and the wrath of himself. This gives us great hope that he will gather his people. And no longer will we be held captive to human practices or be enslaved by ungodly oppression. And I'm not talking about social justice oppression. I'm talking about oppression to sin. Being bound by the shackles of sin and shame and coming judgment. No, God will take those away for his people. Our father will remove oppression and he will lead us into praise. And our shame becomes worship. And in his name all oppression shall cease. And from our mouths will flow sweet hymns of joy as we raise grateful chorus and praise to his holy name. Why? Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. In other words, I will pull you away from all these godless institutions. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and I will gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Why? Because Christ is the Lord. We need to make much of the coming of Jesus the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, because it is all of that that gives us great hope. See, Zephaniah's message, the prophet's message, was one of judgment for those who would rebel against God and not trust in God alone. See, here's the thing. We want to think about these people as being godless individuals who wanted nothing to do with God, but they were claiming to be people of God. They were claiming to worship God, but they had added to the worship of God by also worshiping false idols. But God is a jealous God. He does not want to share His glory with another, and He will not. And so He is pronouncing judgment to the people that they must repent for their sins, and the prideful and the rebellious will not do that but there is a great hope of a satisfying salvation in God's promised Messiah for those who do trust, who humble themselves and repent to Him. You see, hope was promised. 
a Savior was coming. But for us, for now, we, we hold on to this hope that He is coming again, that He will make all things new, even though we may live during dark days. For me, this reminds me of Narnia. I've referenced Narnia multiple times, so if you haven't read the books, I'm sorry. Maybe you've at least watched the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, so you can catch some of this. But C.S. Lewis used Narnia to expose us to the glories of God and the greatness of heaven. But there's this part in there where the land of Narnia, under the curse of the white witch, it said, it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. In other words, we live in dark days and it seems that there is no hope. And, and our response should be the same response of little Lucy from Narnia where she simply says, how awful. How awful that it's never good, that there's no goodness, that it's always cold, that it's always dark, that it's always broken. But later there's this prophecy quoted by Mr. Beaver. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, all shall, uh, we shall have spring again. All things will be made new. Friends, evil may reign, but Jesus came with a hope and he came with a victory to destroy sin and to destroy death. Which is why the words of Father Christmas in Narnia should ring extremely true to us. This is what he said. She, referring to the white witch, she has kept me out for a long time, but her magic is weakening. Aslan is on the move. Merry Christmas. Long live the true king. God has saved us for his purposes. To proclaim a salvation to those who desperately need it. He didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the proud. He came for the humble. And God has called us from darkness into, mar into His marvelous light. Where we were not a people, but now we are God's people. So that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who has done exactly that. Who has called us from darkness to light. He has called us with an everlasting calling to continuously praise His name. To continuously share the gospel of grace. And even though it may seem that evil abounds and evil reigns, God is still God. Aslan is on the move. If you don't know, Aslan is a lion and is a portrayal of Christ in Narnia. All will be made right. Wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. 
At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. See, the message of Zephaniah was of judgment for the proud who will not repent of their sin and turn to God alone. But the message of Zephaniah was also one of great hope for those who would humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and trust in the Lord. Where is your satisfaction coming from? Where is your hope resting? Are you resting in the hope of Christ? The salvation that He and only He can bring. Or are you still trying to do this thing on your own power, by your own terms? Thinking that God doesn't really care and that He'll welcome you in in the very end. That's not the message of the gospel. But the message of the gospel A satisfying salvation comes in and through Christ and Christ alone. And God calls us to trust Him. God wants us to trust Him. God wants us to rest in Him. The question is, will we do that? Will we trust in Jesus? Let's pray. Our Father, what a glorious hope that we have that although we are deserving of death and judgment, you make a way for us to have life, Christ. So today, God, may we trust in you. May we repent of the sin in our life and rest in the grace that comes from Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray.